Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, uh, we started a a series last week. It's a five-part series. This is part two tonight. We've called it It's About Time, uh, Bringing the Future into Focus. And again, I've mentioned this. These are some things we're talking about that I've talked about before, but not in the depth that I want to do it in these five weeks. It's been something I've kind of wanted to do for some period of time. You all know that I love, love prophecy, eschatology. And, you know, it's fun to talk about kind of the, you know, current events or things like that related to it. But I think it's important for us to get kind of the, uh, the truths that kind of undergird what we really believe and to kind of put the smaller pieces into place. And so what I'm attempting to do in this series here is, as I mentioned last time, is kind of look at uh, the three main issues in Bible prophecy or eschatology or end times, whatever word you want to use for it the three main issues that kind of determine where you stand with your view of the future of eschatology biblically. And I made the point last time that really the main issue when you talk about prophecy and prophetic truth in the Bible is timing. We we agree a lot on on what's going to happen, but a lot of the disagreement is on when things happen. And I gave a lot of illustrations of that last week. I won't repeat them. But you've got, as we pointed out last time, and I've got the uh, slide here, there's kind of five broad approaches or categories that you fit into eschatologically. Um, We'll review those in just a moment again, but, you know, are things past? Are they happening now? Are they kind of timeless? Are they future? Or is it kind of a mixture of all of those? Then you have three different views of the millennium. Um, Everybody agrees, if you're a believer, that there's a thousand-year reign of Christ spoken of in the book of Revelation, but when's it going to take place? Is it happening now, or is it future? And kind of what's the nature of it? And then after that, kind of the third issue is you kind of funnel down, really, in your eschatology is your view of the timing of the rapture. Um, That's another issue that people debate, you know, the timing of the rapture. Is Christ going to come back before the tribulation, the middle of it, the end of the tribulation? these different views of timing. So you've got a broad overall approach that you have. Then you've got an approach you have to the millennial reign of Christ. Then you have an approach that you have to the rapture. Now, actually, the rapture happens before the millennium, but I'm doing it in that order just because the millennium uh, has a, there's a lot more scriptures that deal with the millennium than than the rapture. So kind of funneling down, down from the broadest to the narrowest. So we, we started out last time looking at four basic interpretations of the book of Revelation, um, but you could call these four just broad approaches to prophecy in general. And again, we, we looked at preterism, uh, which preterists say that either all or most of the events of the book of Revelation and what we would call New Testament prophecy was fulfilled in and around 70 A.D., Um, We said the problem with that view is the dating of the book of Revelation, first of all, because the book of Revelation can't be a prophecy about events in 70 A.D. if it was written in 95 A.D. So that's a huge problem for for preterists. And they try to show that it was written in the mid-60s, but I think it's a, a hurdle they're not able to overcome. The other problem with preterism is it's very difficult. In fact, I believe when you read their, their commentaries and their books, it's impossible for them to maintain a consistent interpretation of the book and fit everything into 70 A.D. So they take a few things literally, and then when something doesn't fit 70 A.D., they say, well, that's symbolic. And then they find something else that's literal, and they say, well, that was literal. And then the next thing doesn't fit, and they say that's symbolic. So it's just back and forth. It's an inconsistent method of interpretation that I believe plagues that view and and renders it unacceptable. 
Um, the second view is called historicism. Historicists believe that the book of Revelation and really prophecies are a panorama of events between the first and second coming of Jesus. Um, this was the view of the reformers. Again, as we pointed out last time, you can see why they believed that you know, Babylon was Rome and the, you know, the, the beast was uh, the Antichrist was the Pope and all of that. That's what they were dealing with in their time. But the problem is with historicism, every generation of people kind of interpret things they see happening through their own grid and their own period of time. And then the next generation comes along and they give them different interpretations. So that's where people get off track. Um, you know, you have people, uh, you know, extreme forms of this are people like David Koresh, you know, that, you know, believe they're the Messiah and the seal judgments are being fulfilled by them and all those kinds of things. So it sees prophecy as being fulfilled now. Again, the, the major drawback of historicism is there's no consistent interpretation. It's very subjective and it kind of changes with each generation of people. So that's the, the real drawback, I think, to that view. Um, idealism, that's kind of the main view, really, we said among scholars. There's really not any historical fulfillment. The book of Revelation is just the, the constant ongoing battle between the church and the world at all times in the church age. And so you just kind of have the same thing being repeated over and over again. The problem with that view is it doesn't give any concrete meaning to all of the symbols in the book. Whereas Jesus in chapter 1 tells us when you see a symbol like uh, the seven lampstands or the seven angels in Jesus' hand, those have something they refer to that's literal. So I think that's the, the drawback for that view. So the view that I hold, and I think it's the only view where you can have a, a consistent literal interpretation of the book of Revelation is futurism, which holds that chapters 4 and following are about real people and real events yet to come to pass in world history. So it applies to Revelation, but to many other prophecies as well. And then we said, you know, there's this view called the eclectic view that kind of combines all four of them. It's kind of the cop-out view, I call it. Um, most people, though, that claim to be eclectic primarily are idealists. That's kind of their main view, really. And then they kind of try to piece a few other things in there. So every person who studies prophecy, eschatology, end times theology, again, whatever term you want to use, you're going to fall in one of these camps. And I'm a futurist. Um, that's the, the viewpoint that I take. Now, after you decide what your kind of broad interpretation is, the next move you have to make, really theologically and timing-wise, uh, has to do with the millennium, the millennial reign of Christ. Now, millennium, it's a Latin word, mille annum, which means a thousand years. Um, so the millennium is the thousand-year reign of Jesus. And it's found in Revelation 20. If you want to turn there, we're going to look at some passages there in a, in a bit, uh, kind of at least maybe put, put a piece of paper there. We're going to look at a few other things. But Revelation 20, uh, verses 1 through 6, actually verse 1 through 7, you find the word thousand years there six times. It's talking about Christ reigning and people reigning with Him. So I call this uh, Satan's chain and the Savior's reign because at the beginning of these verses, Satan is bound. He's bound in the, the abyss, the bottomless pit or the shaft of the abyss for a thousand years and Christ and others reign uh, during that time. So we have this, this thousand-year period here described. Um, Dr. Uh, Dwight Pentecost, one of my beloved professors at Dallas Seminary, wrote a great book called Things to Come years ago. In fact, he wrote it in the late 50s. 
Um, He says this in his book, a larger body of prophetic scripture is devoted to the subject of the millennium, developing its character and conditions than any one subject. Now, that's a, a, a big statement. But what he's seeing here is you only have the millennium mentioned, really, the thousand-year period here in Revelation 20. But Dr. Pentecost saw, and I see as well, these Old Testament prophets again and again and again, large swaths of material in the Old Testament prophets, speaking of a time when Messiah will come and when He will rule and He will reign over the earth. So you have a lot of Old Testament prophecies that I think describe this period of time. The main thing that's introduced that's new in Revelation 20 is just how long it's going to last. So it's been prophesied, you know, I think from uh, all the way back in the time of Abraham. But what we finally find out, you all know there's something called the progress of revelation. That is, as the Bible is written and it's unfolded, God reveals more and more. There's a progress of what God reveals. And finally, at the end of the Bible here in chapter 20, we find out how long this messianic age on the earth is going to last. It's going to last a thousand years. But this is not the only place that talks about the millennium. It's spoken of in many, many places, I believe, uh, in in the Old Testament. Now, there's three main views of the millennium. Now, there's there's a lot of views for everything, right? And uh, one of the reasons that people don't study prophecy is they'll often tell me, well, there's too many different views about prophecy. That's the reason I don't want to study it. When they say that, though, if they're a person who knows something about theology, I'll say, well, you know, uh, why do we study uh, about uh, the Lord's Supper? You know, there's a lot of views on the Lord's Supper. Do you take it every week? Do you take it once, you know, once a month? Um, do you use leavened bread? Do you use unleavened bread? Do you use a common cup? Do you use different cups? I mean, you can go about 50 different issues about the Lord's Supper. Uh, when it comes to baptism, um, you know, do you baptize infants? Do you baptize believers? Do you baptize them in the name of Jesus? Do you baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? Do you baptize them backwards? You know, grace brethren baptize you forward, and they do it three times. So, you know, there's all kinds of different debates about a lot of different things, and yet we talk about those things. But somehow when it comes to prophecy, people say, well, there's all these views, and so, you know, it's too confusing. I don't want to think about it. Now, there's an old story, I know I've told this a lot of times, but you know, about the little boy at church, and you always heard him talking about, you know, justification and, you know, sanctification and glorification and adoption and all the, they call them the shun words. And one time a, a teacher in class asked if anybody knew what procrastination meant. And the little boy said, I have no idea, but I know our church believes in it. And uh, <laughs> that's kind of the way it is sometimes with, with a lot of these words and prophecy, people trying to figure out, out what all these things mean. But the three main views of the millennium are the amillennial view. When you put the letter A in front of a word, it negates the meaning, right? It's called, a, it's called the alpha privative, when you know the letter alpha in Greek, alpha privative. It negates the meaning. So it means no millennium. Now, amillennialists believe in a millennium, but they believe it's a, a, it's a spiritual millennium. So they don't believe in a literal thousand-year earthly reign of Christ. That's why it's called the amillennial view. So with amillennialism, the millennium is realized. That is, it's happening now. Uh, the postmillennial view, we'll talk about that in a minute. It means that Jesus comes back post or the end of the millennium. The millennium gets established on earth through the preaching of the gospel, and Jesus comes back post or the end of it. So that view, we would say, believes that the millennium is achievable. 
And the premillennial view, the one that I hold, is that Christ comes back pre or the beginning of the millennium, and he's the one that establishes it, and that it's a literal thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth. And that view, we would say that the millennium is anticipated. So you have a, a realized millennium, an achievable millennium, or an anticipated millennium. Now, you've got all these views. I read one guy one time. He says, I'm pro-millennial. He says, I'm for the millennium anytime. And I like that view because, uh, you know, the more you look at our world today and what's going on, I'm pro-millennial. I can tell you that. I want the Lord to come back and uh, to set things right. Now, when you get to the issue of the millennium, the one thing that everybody agrees on in all three of these views, and this is important to remember, we all believe that Jesus is the king. And that's the most important thing, right? All these views believe that Jesus is the king, that he's the one who reigns. But what we disagree about is when he will reign and how he will reign and where he will reign. So, you know, the good news is if someone's a believer and they're a post-millennialist or an amillennialist, they believe Jesus is king and that we need to thank God and praise him for that, that we agree on that. But you get to these other issues then, when, when will Jesus reign? And that's really the key issue. Again, it's timing. It's a timing issue. And then how will he reign? What's the nature of his reign? Is it a, an earthly, literal, a political uh, reign of Jesus on the earth, or is it a spiritual reign? And then where will he reign? Is it literally on the earth, or is he reigning now, seated on David's throne in heaven? So those are the three issues. So again, we agree who the king is, but we don't agree when he'll reign, how he'll reign, and where he will reign. Now here's something somebody sent me. I like this. You've got pre-mill, post-mill, and ah-mill there for you, those of you that are coffee drinkers. You guys get that, right? There wasn't much of a laugh on that. So anyway, pre-mill, post-mill, ah-mill. So those are the, the three viewpoints when it comes to this idea of the millennium. Now, again, a lot of people will ask the question sometimes about these types of points. They'll say, well, what's really the difference of which one of these views you hold? I mean, you know, if Jesus is the king and we all believe in him. Well, look, for our salvation and for eternity and those things, it doesn't matter for that. But again, you have, I would say, hundreds of passages in the Old Testament, in the prophets, that speak of a future time of the reign of the coming Messiah. And your view of the millennium is going to determine how you interpret many, many, many passages in the prophets, large parts of Isaiah, places in Jeremiah, Ezekiel, all the minor prophets. Um, you're going to come to passages in the New Testament um, that you're going to have to, to make decisions about. So again, it's, it's, a, it's an issue of our interpretation of the Bible. So as you're reading the Bible, as you read through the Bible or read books of the Bible, whichever one of these views you take is going to inform how you're understanding large parts of the Bible. Again, it's not going to affect whether you go to heaven or not, but you think, you know, God put those passages there and wants us to understand them. If it didn't matter, he would have just said, Jesus is king, don't worry about it, right? But all these passages are there, and so we want to look at the details of those and try to be the best students we can of the Bible to understand it correctly. I think that's important for us. God took the time to inspire the Bible, to, to write the Scriptures, and uh, we want to understand it uh, the very best that we can. Now, let me just explain these three views. Some of you have heard a lot about these and, and know a lot about them. Some of you, this may be fairly new. 
Again, the amillennial view, they believe that the time between the first and the second coming of Jesus, that this is the millennium right now. We're in the millennium. The millennium is something that's being experienced now. It's a present reality. It's not an anticipated hope in the future. So for them, the thousand years in Revelation 20 that's mentioned six times is just a figurative number for just a long period of time. So that's their, that's their understanding. And they would say, oh, we're in the millennium now, and amillennialism is simple. They believe that someday Jesus will come back. There's going to be a general resurrection of all the righteous and the unrighteous. There's going to be one great judgment at the end, and then we'll go into the new heaven and the new earth, Revelation 21 and 22. So no thousand-year reign of Jesus on the earth. He comes back, general resurrection, general judgment, and we go uh, into eternity at that period of time. Now, the amillennial view came about really in the fourth century. Now, when I say that, it really wasn't systematized then, and I'll talk about this quite a bit here in a few moments, but in the early church, uh, the early church fathers, almost all of them, were what were called kiliasts. And the word kiliast comes from the Greek word for a thousand. So early on, they were called kiliasts, and later on, they started to become, be known as millenarians or millennialists. And the reason is the dominant language changed. The dominant language was Greek, and the Greek word for thousand is kilios, so they were kilios. Then later when Latin takes over, then it becomes known as kind of millenarians or those who believe in a literal millennium, and then they become premillennialists later. But the early church, and I'll show you this here in a moment, a lot of quotes by them, were, were kiliasts. And um, Augustine, one of the great fathers of the early church, Augustine was a kiliast for many, many years. But he was influenced by a man named Tychonius, and Tychonius believed that in Revelation 20 here, when it says that Satan is bound for a thousand years, that that happened at the first coming of Christ. And Augustine was greatly influenced by Tychonius and adopted that view. And part of it was, again, um, when, when uh, Augustine's alive, Augustine's uh, from North Africa, that's when the Roman Empire is beginning to disintegrate. Um, Alaric, I think was his name, had come into Rome and sacked Rome in 410 A.D. Augustine's alive during that time. He's seeing this happen. And what he's doing is he's thinking, you know, we don't want people to give up hope. So he has the idea that Satan is bound and that God is still the one who's in power. And he, he kind of develops this view a little bit out of the circumstances of his day. And he sees the view of a thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth where he's ruling in Jerusalem and, and there's feasting going on and all that as being too carnal. In fact, if you read in the city of God, that's what he says. This just seems too carnal to me. So he came up with the idea that the millennium is now and it's a spiritual kingdom. So this came along in, in about the fourth century. But it wasn't like, you know, uh, Tychonius or, or uh, Augustine came along and says, well, I'm no longer a premillennialist, now I'm an amillennialist. They had been kiliasts, now they were just non-kiliasts. You know what I mean? It hadn't been kind of developed and systematized yet. So they just rejected this kiliastic idea of a thousand-year kingdom. And then slowly then after that, this whole idea begins to be developed of this spiritual kingdom. Um, 
a lot of amillennialists today, some people, someone asked me last week, why don't you give some names of well-known amillennialists? Most of the people I would name, you probably don't know who they are, kind of scholars that are, that are out there. But R.C. Sproul was an amillennialist. Of course, there's always the old joke, you know, R.C. Sproul has died. We'd say, well, he's not an amillennialist now that he's in heaven. You know, that's the old joke everybody always has. Um, Alistair Begg, you know, is an amillennialist. He's a well-known uh, Bible teacher. Um, again, a lot of, of well-known preachers, professors, um, probably out there among scholars and people in seminaries, this is probably the dominant view today, is the amillennial view. So we're in the millennium now, and uh, Christ is ruling and reigning in heaven. Um, some will focus on the fact that He's reigning in heaven now. Others will focus on that He's reigning in our hearts. But either way, this is the millennium today. It's this spiritual kingdom. And by the way, another well-known amillennialist is Sam Storm. Some of you know Sam's name. He's a pastor at Bridgeway here in Oklahoma City or in Edmond. Um, he's written, in fact, a, a big book called Kingdom Come. Uh, that's a very, it's, it's a good presentation of amillennialism. I think he's a little bit um, cost, more caustic against premillennialism than he should be um, in some of his statements. But he gives, you know, he, he gives the, the good arguments for, for that view. Um, the postmillennial view is basically the same as amillennialism, except it believes, you know, the millenniums today, it's, it's, it's spiritual, it's a spiritual kingdom. It's going to end at the second coming. Uh, there'll be a general resurrection, a general judgment at that time. But they believe Christ is coming back post or the end of the millennium because they think the world, through the preaching of the gospel, is going to be Christianized. So there's going to be a continual progress of the gospel. So the millennium will be established on earth through the preaching of the gospel, and the world will be Christianized. So Jesus then will just come back at the end of that time because the millennium's already here. Uh, my, uh, one of my professors at Dallas Seminary, Dr. Honer, was kind of uh, being a little facetious about postmillennialism. He said they believe that God the Father is going to look at Jesus someday and say, Jesus, things down there are just about as good as they are up here now. Why don't you go on down there to the earth? Um, now, I think that's a very idealistic view of, of what's happening uh, here in our, in our world. I think it was Charles Spurgeon who said, uh, we're liable to have pandemonium in this world more than we're to have a millennium in this world. And, and that's the way it's headed. Postmillennialism was a popular view um, in, the, in the 19th century, very popular view with all of with the Renaissance, the Industrial Revolution, or the Renaissance was earlier, but the Industrial Revolution, you know, medicines being, uh, uh, you know, invented and all these kinds of things. World War I put a pretty good dent in a lot of post-millennial hopes. World War II almost dashed it to death, uh, really. I mean, it's not as common of a view today. What's interesting about post-millennialism, it didn't really come about in church history till the 1500s. I mean, it's the Johnny-come-lately of these views. A guy named Thomas Brightman um, kind of began to popularize the view, and then it was really systematized by actually a Unitarian named Daniel Whitby in about 1700. Um, so, you know, postmillennialists claim that they're very optimistic, you know. Now, I always tell everybody, I'm a premillennialist, and I'm the ultimate optimist as well. I'm just more pessimistic in the near future, but I'm optimistic about the ultimate future. And uh, so, but they claim that their view is very, very positive, you know, and, and uh, optimistic. Um, so those are, are the three views, uh, the, or, or uh, the, the first two views. The third view is premillennialism. And again, this is the view you all know that I hold. And premillennialism says that, 
Christ, of course, came and he died on the cross, he resurrected, goes to heaven, and that we live today in the church age. Um, we live in this time of, of, of the church age when the gospel is being spread. Jews and Gentiles are together in one body. Uh, there's a coming time of tribulation in the future. Um, Christ will come back at his second coming, and that's when the first resurrection will take place, the resurrection of the dead, of, of believers. Then Christ will set up his kingdom on the earth for 1,000 years, and he will rule and reign and fulfill the promises of God in the Old Testament. And then the great white throne judgment will occur. There'll be the second resurrection, which is the resurrection of all the unjust. And then we'll go into eternity to the uh, uh, new heaven and the new earth in Revelation 21 and 22. So Christ will come back pre or before the millennium, and he will establish it and he will set it up. Now, among premillennialists, some put more of a focus on Israel and their part in the millennium. Others see it more as, a, as, as Gentiles there. So there are differences even among premillennialists. But all premillennialists believe in a literal thousand-year reign of Christ. One thing, and I'm going to give some reasons for premillennialism here this week and next week, but one thing I just want to mention, this is, this is not really as much of a biblical argument as it is a theological argument. But one of the, the reasons, and a, a lot of uh, a premillennialists like James Boyce and others have brought this out, if there's not a millennium where Christ's world will never have really been fulfilled and achieved, I think that's an interesting argument because what he would say is God creates the world and he creates Adam and Eve to rule and to take dominion over this earth. And Satan comes in, there's the fall, sin, and uh, Satan really is the, the prince of this world. He's called the God of this world. And if you hold amillennialism or postmillennialism, what happens is Christ comes back at his second coming. There's a general resurrection, a general judgment, and then there's a new heaven and a new earth that's created then where we reign forever. But there's not a time when God's original purpose for this world that he created is fulfilled. And I think that's compelling because the Bible says, of course, we have Adam who sinned, but Jesus is called the last Adam or the second Adam, second man. And I believe that Jesus, the last Adam, will come and fulfill what the first Adam was supposed to do. And that God's purposes for this earth that we have now will be fulfilled. Otherwise, you could argue that Satan won in some ways, that he thwarted the purposes of God for this planet. So I think there's a necessity theologically for this time when the Messiah will come, the second Adam, the last Adam, and do what the first Adam didn't do. God's purposes for this world will be fulfilled. Then there'll be this final judgment and resurrection. Then we will go into the new heaven and new, new earth. So that's a, more of a, of a theological argument. Um, again, there's another old story. I know I've told this, but when I was at Dallas Seminary, um, one of my professors told a story about Don Campbell. He was the president when I was there at the time, and he used to teach in the Bible exposition department, and he walked into class one day, and he told the men in the class, he said, last night I was reading the Bible and became an amillennialist. Well, I mean, I think God's going to get fired. He's going to lose his job. He's done. He said, wait a minute, before you all get all worked up, let me tell you. He said, last night, he said, I was sitting in my chair, and I was watching the news and all the bad stuff going on in the world and, you know, chaos everywhere and, and, uh, and all the fighting in different places. And he said, uh, I just read uh, the passages in, in the middle part of the early part of the book of Isaiah. And he said, I just leaned back in my chair and said, ah, millennium. Now, that's the kind of, I'm an amillennialist, you want to look at it like that, because 
with what we see in this world, I mean, think about the collective suffering that's going on in this world today. You see it everywhere. Just today I was out walking and I saw a lady carrying a small child and just the look on her face, she just looked distressed. You see that everywhere with people, everywhere we go, and that's just multiplied, you know, millions and millions of time over in this world we live in. And so that's the hope we have that Christ is coming back someday as King. He's going to make this world right, and He's going to fulfill the purposes that God originally had for this creation. Now, let me go through some reasons that I'm a premillennial. So we won't finish this tonight, and I'm not going to be in a big hurry to go through it. So um, I want to look at some reasons. Now, I'm not going to give all the reasons why I'm not an amillennialist or a postmillennialist. I think most of the things I'm saying about why I'm a premillennialist will argue against uh, the other view. So I think just giving the positive here will probably uh, suffice. Um, I, I've got a little uh, acronym here. You can see it in the yellow there, P-R-E-M-I-L, pre-mill. So it helps me remember my six arguments for premillennialism. And now uh, when we get to uh, the timing for the rapture, I've got the acronym pre-trib. So I've got those uh, there, those six arguments for that. So it helps me be able to remember these. But just mention them here quickly. The first one is the promises of God. I believe there are promises that God made in the Old Testament that are literal promises that have to be fulfilled that haven't been fulfilled yet. And the only time that I know of in the future when they could be fulfilled would be in a millennial reign or a messianic reign of Christ. The second reason I'm a premillennialist is because of the resurrection in Revelation 20. Now, we'll probably get to that tonight. And that's the most complicated of the arguments. You're going to have to put your thinking caps on with that one for me, but I want to mention it. The other ones here is that premillennialism was the earliest view. This was the earliest view of the church. And I'm going to give you a lot of quotes by church fathers who held to this view. Now, again, that doesn't prove that it's the right view, but it does prove that many, many people early in the church held this view. In fact, um, a man named Papias, who knew John, he was a disciple of the apostle John, was a Kiliast. He believed in a literal thousand-year reign of Christ. Now, I think that's significant because if a guy got taught by John and that's the view he held, I mean, you'd think he probably held what John held. Um, so we'll look at that. And then the, the, the fourth reason is I just think that the premillennial view, especially here in Revelation 20, is the most natural reading of the passage. Now, I know that's a little bit subjective because people will say, well, I'm an amillennial, so I think my view is the most natural reading, but I'll show you why I say that. Um, the fifth reason is the incarceration of Satan. During the thousand-year millennium, wherever you put it, Satan is bound. That's what it says here in chapter 20 and verse 1. I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the abyss and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who's the devil, and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, threw him into the abyss, shut it, sealed it over him, so that he should not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. So Satan is bound during this 1,000 years. And I think that's a problem for the other views and a support for premillennialism. And then the final point is that I take the thousand years here to be literal. And if it's literal, then amillennialism and postmillennialism can't be right because, you know, we've been 2,000 years now between the first coming and, and we're still waiting for the second coming of Jesus. So 
These are the six reasons that I have why, why I, I think that premillennialism is uh, the strongest view uh, of these. So let's get started, and we'll look at, uh, see how far we can get here tonight. We may just cover this first one, but the first reason, the first biblical reason for supporting premillennialism is what I just called the promises of God. And by this, I mean Old Testament promises that are given by God that have not been fulfilled yet, I believe. Now, again, I'm just going to kind of go over this quickly, and I don't want to go. We may come back and look at a little bit more in detail next week. But when you go back to Genesis chapter 15, God made a covenant with Abraham. He made a blood covenant. And it's called, and God says when he makes this covenant with Abraham that it's forever. And I believe it was an unconditional covenant because Abraham didn't make any promises. In other words, it wasn't bilateral. It wasn't, Abraham, if you do this, then I'll do this. God just said, Abraham, here's what I'm going to do for you and for your descendants. So I believe it was an eternal, unconditional, unilateral covenant. God's the only one that makes any promises. And God promised Abraham. He promised him that um, he would have a seed or descendants. He promised him uh, a land I call it soil, and then he promised that through Abraham and his descendants, all the nations of the earth would be blessed, and I call that salvation. So he promised him seed, soil, and salvation. Now, two prongs of that have been fulfilled. Abraham had many descendants and became a great nation, and that prong of the Abrahamic covenant was literally fulfilled, right? I mean, there's 13, 15 million Jews in the world today descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We know that through Abraham, all the nations of the earth have been blessed because it's through Abraham and his descendants that we have the Bible. And that's through whom the Messiah ultimately came. So that prong of the Abrahamic covenant was also literally fulfilled. So the seed part of it, uh, the salvation part of it, the parts of the Abrahamic covenant that have been fulfilled were literally fulfilled. But you come to chapter 15 in the book of of Genesis, and God promises Abraham a piece of land. And he tells Abraham, you look, lift up your eyes, and you look in every direction as far as you can see, and I will give this land to you and to your descendants forever. And the land that God promised to give to Abraham and his descendants forever has never been possessed by the Jewish people. Now, if the other two parts of that covenant were both literally fulfilled, and that part hasn't been literally fulfilled, I believe it has to be literally fulfilled someday. And I believe it's going to be fulfilled when Christ comes back and sets up His messianic kingdom and fulfills the promise He made uh, to Abraham. Now, that's a simplistic view of all that, or simplistic explanation, but um, I think it will suffice for what we're discussing. Uh, God goes on later, and he makes a promise to David, to King David. He makes a covenant with David. And the covenant with David is an eternal covenant. God says it's forever. Um, It was also an unconditional covenant, I believe. Um, It was a unilateral covenant. And what did God promise David? He promised him three things. David, someone from your house is going to sit on your throne and is going to rule over your kingdom forever. Now, when David heard somebody from his house, what does that mean to David? One of his descendants, right? One of David's descendants. Now, everybody agrees, whatever their view of prophecy, if they're a believer, that that descendant of David is Jesus. We all agree on that. But he says, David, one of your descendants is going to sit on your throne. 
is going to rule over your kingdom. Now, amillennialists say that the throne of David now is in heaven, and Jesus is seated on that throne now, and that David's kingdom is Israel and the church, because they see the church as the same thing as Israel, and Israel is the same thing as the church. Now, I have problems with that because when God made David that promise, one of your descendants is going to sit on your throne and rule over your kingdom, there's only one way David could have understood that. One of my descendants is going to sit on my throne here on the earth and is going to rule over my kingdom, which is Israel, which is the land that God promised. Now, I was a lawyer a long time ago, and I was listening to some of those hearings today, listening to that Brett Kavanaugh guy answer those questions, and I thought, man, that guy knows a lot about the law. But I do remember one thing from contract law. I don't remember very much anymore, but I remember one thing, and that is to have a contract, you have to have a meeting of the minds. You don't have a contract unless you have a meeting of the minds. And so when God is promising David, one of your descendants is going to sit on your throne and rule over your kingdom. If David's thinking, yeah, my earthly throne and my kingdom, which is Israel, but God's thinking, well, David, it's not really quite going to be like that. It's going to be a throne in heaven, and it's going to be a, a kingdom that's uh, you know, universal and includes Gentiles and all of that, then David and God never really entered into a covenant because there's no way that David was thinking all that because God never explained it to him. There's no way he'd have a context even have understood that. And the problem I have is, and I reread a book this last week by Kim Riddlebarger, a well-known amillennialist, and it's a good book. He's a good man. I appreciate him. But four times in one chapter, he talks about how we have to go to the New Testament and reinterpret the Old Testament. Now, I think that's a big problem. Now, the New Testament certainly amplifies the Old Testament. And there's things in the New Testament that fulfill prophecies in the Old Testament. But when you say that you're in the New Testament, we have to go back and reinterpret the Old Testament. What that means is the interpretation you would have come up with when it was originally given would be wrong. So I believe the New Testament can amplify, can apply, can um, uh, fulfill the Old Testament. But the New Testament does not reinterpret the Old Testament. What the passage meant when it was given is what it means. You can't have several meanings for, for a passage. That's a hermeneutical principle that I believe. So I believe there's promises made in the Old Testament. I mean, you've got in the prophets, I mean, again, I, we could go read many, many promises there where, you know, God promises Mount Zion, you know, which is Jerusalem, is going to be the chief among the nations, going to be the chief among all the mountains of the earth. The nations are going to flow there. God's throne's going to be there. What's fascinating is when I read uh, commentaries by our amillennial brothers and sisters, what they'll do is, you'll be reading a commentary, for instance, um, like on uh, the book of Amos or, or some Old Testament prophet, and they'll be going, going along, and Israel is Israel, and Judah is Judah, and they'll be talking about the times when this book is written. But if it, if it goes to a future kingdom and a Messiah and, and Mount Zion and, and those kinds of things and talking about the future, then they, they take that allegorically and spiritualize it and say, well, it's not really talking about literal Israel. And they've taken Israel to be Israel 20 times already in the book, but all of a sudden when it comes to a passage that's future and eschatological, they say, well, now Israel doesn't mean Israel. And then after that, later in the book, they'll take Israel to mean Israel again. And again, I, I just think that's an inconsistent way to interpret Scripture, and it would not have been done by anyone in the times of the prophets who were reading those prophecies. They would have never thought of it in those terms. 
So you have promises in the Old Testament that are made, and the parts of those promises that have been fulfilled have been literally fulfilled. So I believe that the parts that haven't been fulfilled have to be literally fulfilled as well. Now, I think the New Testament reinforces the literal interpretation of these promises. Let me just give you a couple of these. In Matthew 19 and verse 28, Jesus is there with his 12 disciples. And he tells his 12 disciples, because you followed me. And uh, he's talking there about, the. He, he says, in the regeneration. And what he's saying there is, this world someday is going to be regenerated. It's going to be born again. In the regeneration, you will sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, again, I think the only way the disciples took that is in the regeneration, when this world gets regenerated and born again someday, we're going to sit on 12 thrones and we're going to judge the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, amillennialists say those thrones are, are thrones in heaven. But again, I don't think that's the way the disciples would have taken it. They're there on the earth with Jesus. They believe in an earthly messianic kingdom. They believe we're going to sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. By the way, when Judas goes out, he betrays Jesus, goes out and hangs himself and dies. In Acts chapter 1, what is the first order of business for the apostles after Jesus ascends to heaven? They, get in a, a, they, they, they appoint a successor to Judas, and they get a man named Matthias. And I think the reason they did that so quickly is they wanted to have the 12th guy to sit on that 12th throne. Because I think they thought things were going to move very quickly. One passage that's really powerful, if you'll turn there with me in Acts, we'll look at this for a moment and one more in Revelation and we'll, we'll pick up next time. But over in the book of Acts, this is a, a really powerful passage, I think, uh, for the idea that there's a coming literal reign of Christ and that it's a, a fulfillment of the covenants and, and the promises God made to Israel. Now, I'll summarize this quickly. Um, Jesus is resurrected, and before he uh, ascends to heaven, he ascends to heaven 40 days later. And then there's a 10-day period, and then the day of Pentecost comes. But you'll notice in Acts chapter 1, uh, at the, the middle of verse 3, it says that Jesus, by many convincing proofs, was appearing to them over a period of 40 days he was speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Now, to me, that's fascinating. Of all the things Jesus could have talked to his disciples about during this 40-day period, he was telling them about the kingdom of God. Now, why was he telling them about the kingdom of God? Well, one of the reasons is they had the expectation that Jesus, as the Messiah, would come to set up the messianic kingdom, and the kingdom hadn't come. There was no messianic kingdom. The, the, the power of Rome hadn't been thrown off, and they were expecting these things to happen. And so in their mind, if you're the Messiah, why hasn't the kingdom been established that's promised throughout the Old Testament? And I think he's teaching them, I am the king, I'm the Messiah. What's happened is I've been rejected, and now we're going to have the church age. And I don't think he explained it in a lot of detail to them because it was still somewhat of a mystery. But he tells them that he's coming back at some point and the kingdom is going to be brought to the earth that was promised in the Old Testament. Now you say, well, how do we know that? Well, notice in uh, verse uh, 4, it says, In gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but, wait to, for, but to wait for what the Father had promised. What the Father had promised here is the Holy Spirit. 
Joel chapter 2, you know, in the last days, the Spirit's going to be poured out. And he says, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And so when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? The reason they're asking him that is the coming of the Spirit in the Old Testament is associated again with the coming of Messiah's kingdom. So I want to know, okay, if 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 we're going to get what the Father's promised, then the kingdom must be coming. And they said, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, Jesus had been teaching them about the kingdom for 40 days. And I know the disciples weren't the sharpest knives in the drawer sometimes, but surely they hadn't been so confused during that 40 days that they're asking, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel if Jesus hadn't been teaching them that he was going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They say, is it at this time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And to me, this would have been the perfect place if Jesus was an amillennialist to say, there isn't going to be a kingdom for Israel. Those promises in the Old Testament are now going to be fulfilled in the church. There's not going to be a kingdom for Israel, but he doesn't say that. All he says is, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has fixed by his own authority. Again, it's a timing thing. And to me, Jesus' answer here reinforces the idea that there is going to be a kingdom for Israel. He's just telling them, look, it's not for you to know the time when it's going to happen. Um, several years ago, um, the, the Whitfield Society used to have speakers come to uh, speak uh, uh, here in Oklahoma City, and one year, uh, Bruce Waltke came. And Dr. Waltke is a great man of God. I have the utmost respect for him. Brilliant guy. Went to Harvard. I mean, he's, a, he's an unbelievable Old Testament scholar. But he came and spoke to the, the group of pastors that we, we met down at the Petroleum Club, and he spoke on Ezekiel 37. And Ezekiel 37 is about the bones. You remember you got these bones coming together and um, being uh, joined together. And, and it goes on later in the passage and tells you that these are, uh, this is the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And so I take it as a, a physical uh, resurrection of the Jewish people in the end times. And Dr. Walkie taught for many years at Dallas Seminary. He became an amillennialist, and so he left, and uh, he teaches other places now. Um, I'm not sure he's teaching anywhere now. He's up in, uh, up in age. But he made the comment that Israel will be restored to the kingdom, but the kingdom will never be restored to Israel. He made that comment. You know, in other words, Israel will be restored to the kingdom because he thinks the kingdom is now. It's a spiritual kingdom. So Israel's going to become part of this kingdom that we're in now, but the kingdom will never be restored to Israel. Now, I usually don't go up and talk to speakers after they speak, especially guys like him, but I couldn't resist it this time. And so I went up to Dr. Walkie and I said, you know, I, I told him how much I appreciate his ministry. And I wasn't flattering him. I really do. I mean, he's a godly man, a wonderful Bible teacher. I love the man. But I asked him, I said, Dr. Walkie, you said, you know, the kingdom will never be restored to Israel. Um, you said Israel will be restored to the kingdom. And I asked him about Acts chapter 1. I said, you know, Jesus has been teaching the disciples for 40 days about the kingdom of God. And they say, is it at this time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And it was fascinating because he said, well, I'm not really sure. It said he'd been teaching them about the kingdom for 40 days. Now, remember, he's an Old Testament scholar, so I cut him some slack on that. But he opened his Bible and saw that. And and uh, we talked about it for a few minutes, and 
it was really one thing made me feel good. He said, Dr. Walford used to bring up that argument. I said, well, that's good. That makes me feel good that he did that too. But he didn't really have an answer for it. And it was interesting. You know, you make a comment, you know, the kingdom's going to restore, to, Israel's going to be restored to the kingdom, but the kingdom will never be restored to Israel. The disciples asked Jesus, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel now? That's what they were expecting. All Jesus says is, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has fixed by his own authority. So to me, this is a reinforcement of the fact that the kingdom is going to be restored to Israel. The only thing we don't know again is the timing of that. Now, one other passage, and then we'll, uh, we'll pick up here next time, but this is just one verse, but it's always been one that I haven't really seen a lot of amillennialists uh, or postmillennialists really deal with. They just kind of mention it, but they don't really say a lot about it, and we'll get into uh, some of this more next time. But in Revelation 5, this is the scene in heaven where uh, the Lamb there, the Lord Jesus, the, the, the uh, standing slain Lamb is uh, receiving the, the seven-sealed scroll from the Father who's seated on the throne, which I think is the inheritance. He's getting the inheritance. And he's going to open this scroll. When it's finally opened, he's going to take the inheritance. He's going to take the kingdom. But notice down in verse 10, he's talking about people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And this is a great passage for missions and all of that. And it says in verse 10, And thou hast made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Now, a couple things about that is significant. One is, it doesn't say they are reigning, right? Now, when John's writing this, it's 95 AD, so if you're an amillennialist, you're thinking the kingdom is now, and it's a spiritual kingdom. But he's talking about people, and he says, they will reign, future. And where are they going to reign? It's not Jesus reigning in their heart or him sitting on a throne in heaven reigning. He says, and they will reign in the future on the earth. To me, that's an argument for a future, literal kingdom on the earth. That's where we're going to reign. Again, that's when the promises that uh, or the uh, mandate that God gave to the first Adam will be fulfilled with the last Adam and through us as we rule and uh, we reign uh, with Jesus Christ. We'll we'll pick up here next time. Uh, We'll look at, probably finish this out next time on the millennium here, and then we'll go look at some arguments for the rapture. But anyway, I hope this is helpful to you. I've got a lot of quotes next time I want to give you from early church fathers um, that that supported this idea of a literal thousand-year reign of Christ. You'll you'll find a lot of them really interesting. Um, I used to read uh, a lot of the works of Irenaeus. He's got a book called Against Heresies. And you read Irenaeus, and his view of the end times sounds like Hal Lindsey or something. I mean, you know, people act like that the view that many of us hold today is some like new view that just, you know, popped up in the 60s or the 70s. You go back and read Irenaeus, he believed in a, a, a tribulation period, the Antichrist ruling the world for three and a half years, the Antichrist sitting in a rebuilt temple in Jerusalem. And then Christ coming back at the end of that and reigning for a thousand years. And so I'll read quotes like that to you that you can see from uh, some early church fathers. Again, that doesn't prove that the view that we hold is correct, but it does prove that it's certainly not new. And in fact, it was the earliest view that was held. So we'll pick up there next time. Let's pray together. Father, thank you again for the hope that we have of our coming King. And we, Father, we thank you that uh, as believers in Christ, with our brothers and sisters in the world, wherever they are, 
whatever view they hold about this, that we believe that Jesus Christ is the King. And Father, I pray that that would be reflected in our lives. We believe that Jesus is coming back someday to take over this world and to rule as King of kings and Lord of lords. Father, I pray that he'd be the King of our lives each day as we live, as we await his coming. We ask these things in his precious name. Amen.